0: You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. It was a joy to be with you today and to open up God's word for us. For those of you who I haven't met, my name is Craig Anderson. I'm a member here of the congregation. And if you are a guest here, let me especially offer you a warm welcome this morning to you. Let me pray as we begin. Let's pray together. Our great God, and by your amazing grace towards us, our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you reveal yourself to us through it, and that you speak to us through it by the power of the Holy Spirit. And as we stand here on the threshold of your words, may you incline our hearts toward it this morning. May you open our eyes to see wonderful things in your words. May you unite our hearts together in reverent fear of you. And may you satisfy our hearts in your steadfast love, we ask, Lord Jesus. May our affections be raised to you. We ask and pray for our joy in you and for your glory and your fame amongst the nations. Amen. I'm a bit of a fan of films and I love a good trilogy. I'm always a sucker for the last film. I love the last film the last films in trilogies. Return of the Jedi, definitely my favourite. Return of the King, definitely my favourite. But why is that? Well, it's because in the end, we always see good conquering over evil. We see triumph and celebration for all. We see some sort of pomp and ceremony, awe and majesty for the great hero, and a restoration of order for the people. In Psalm 24, it's been said that we have the end of a trilogy. Psalm 22, we have the psalm of the cross. Psalm 23, that great psalm of the Lord is my shepherds. We have the psalm of the crook, of the shepherd's crook. And Psalm 24, we have the psalm of the crown. And as we go on to read the psalm, we shall indeed see the return of the king. And what a king he is. Let me read for us Psalm 24. If you have one of the red church Bibles, you can find that on page 555. It's a Psalm 24, a Psalm of David. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. For he founded it on the seas and established it on the waters. Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false god. They will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God their saviour. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, you gates, be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, you gates. Lift them up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is he, this king of glory? The Lord Almighty. He is the king of glory. Before we start digging into the psalm, let's think, why was it written? What's going on here? What's likely a response to what's been going on in 2 Samuel chapter 6? Back there, we have the great entry of the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. Jerusalem. And if you read that story, there's tragedy in it. But in amongst the tragedy, there is great rejoicing, overwhelming rejoicing, because the Lord shall finally come and dwell with his people. He will finally come and be amongst his people. Some have argued that this section is actually the highlight of the entire Old Testament. It is such a momentous occasion. In Verses 14 to 15, it says, And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord, shouting and with the sound of the horn. Just picture the scene. It's a long awaited time for the ark of the covenant covenant to be brought into Jerusalem to stay. And there's this great party going on. And the ark is being carried forwards towards Jerusalem. And as this happens, David remembers how great God is that he is the creator of the earth, that he is the possessor of the earth. And as they get closer to Jerusalem, they see the hill of the Lord. And the question goes up, who can go up with the ark? Who can go up and stand in the presence of the Lord? This idea of standing is this idea of making a case for the right to be there. Making a case to be a worshipper of the Lord, like taking the stand in a courtroom. And the answer comes only those who find God to be a saving God, only those who are like Jacob, only those who so live their lives with, with integrity. And the procession carries on and it gets closer and closer and closer to the city gates. And up goes the request to the gates open up, open up for the King of Glory. And there's this response who is the King of Glory? Why should we open up for you? And So the shout goes back, because the king of glory is the Lord. The king of glory is the same one who created the earth and owns it. The king of glory is strong and he is mighty in battle. So the gates are opened. They are opened through the qualification of the Lord's victory in conquest. And so as the gates are opened, not for the king of Israel, not for David, but for the king of glory, and he ascends the hill of the Lord, followed by this great procession behind him. This great procession rejoicing that the Lord is with his people. Now that in summary is what is going on in 2 Samuel 6. We want us to dig a bit into the text here. See this text culminates on the Lord, on the King of glory. And what a dazzling description we have of him here. Perhaps we need to re- reorientate our hearts towards him. So I want to see what this psalm tells us about him. Then that'll help us understand why there's such great rejoicing. And as you can see on the screen behind me, we have three points for the the sermon today. First off, we shall see the possession and power of the king. Then the purity and perfection of the king. And then finally, the proclamation and procession of the king. So let's have a look at verses 1 and 2 as we begin. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. For he founded it on the seas and established it on the waters. It's quite simple, isn't it? The earth is the Lord's. It all belongs to him. Simply put, there is nothing on this earth that we can call ours. Because ultimately, everything belongs to him. Because he made it all. It is the Lord's. It is Yahweh, this great covenant God we read of throughout the scripture. This great covenant God, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is Lord over everything. Back when I was a student in 2008, uh, when I came to university, I'd never heard of words such as theology or reformed or any of these things. And um, there was this rapper, this reformed rapper called Lecrae. And I loved reformed rap music. In fact, I still do, to be honest. Um, And through that, I learned so much stuff. And there was a song which gripped me called Don't Waste Your Life, written about John Piper's book, Don't Waste Your Life. And there's a lyric that has helpfully haunted me all of my days. It says, your singleness, your money, all your talents, your time, they belong to you to show the world that Christ is divine. And within that bracket, your singleness, your marriage, your talent, your time, everything we have comes under that. And it's all been given to us to show the world the glory of the Lord because they belong to him. And David drives us home for a seer in the psalm. This word in verse 2 is one of an act that began in the past, this act of creation in the past, but, but continues on today. His claim is that Jesus' claim isn't just a past event, but rather it's also a present reality. He is both the creator and the maintainer of his creation. So Jesus' claim for supreme lordship is just as relevant today as it was when he first spoke his creation into being. As many of you know, my wife and I, uh, God willing, are expecting the birth of our first child in a few weeks' time. And quite a few people have said to me that when we have children, we seek to bring them up in a certain way. We seek to teach them how to live. We want them to listen to us. We want them to respond to us. We want them to obey us. Because in one sense, they are our most prized possession. In one sense, they belong to us. Our children come from us as God allows us to join in at one level, his great act of creation. But even our children, our most prized possession, belongs to the Lord. For you that may not be children, what is your prized possession? Whatever would crush you if you no longer had it, that too belongs to the Lord. And David really wants us to see this in his opening verses. It's not just things he's talking about, but all who live in it. Look at the end of verse 1. Everyone belongs to the Lord because he has created them. And so the creator has rights over his creation, of which a parent to a child is just a mere shadow. And so because Jesus created us, crafted us, it not only means he has the right to tell us how to live, but it also means he knows the best way for us to live. As many, as many of you know, I work with students in universities across Scotland, and this is the opposite of what our world says. This is the opposite of what they're being taught. The world tells us us we know what is right for us to do. Do whatever is right for you. And this this isn't just coming from the outside, from the aggressive um, militant atheists and whatnot. Rather, this is within mainstream media. Take, for example, uh, the, the singer Taylor Swift, who many of you will know. She wrote a song called Out of the Woods about a former relationship, and then at the end of the music video, some really tragic words come up. At the end, it comes up, she lost him, but she found herself, and somehow that was everything. I mean, on, on face value doesn't seem so bad, but why is it so tragic? Well, someone once said, if the highest purpose of life is to discover yourself, then everything, including our relationships, must be reorientated to that view of self-discovery. And so the ending of a relationship is now a good thing if it prompts that moment of self-discovery. And Taylor's song, it resonates with us deep down because all of us want to be totally known and all of us want to be totally loved. And so the shortcut to being totally known, the shortcut to being totally loved, is to know yourself and to love yourself, to no longer be dependent on anyone else for your happiness. And I think that's tragic. Our world tells us that dependence equals restriction, dependence equals slavery. And independence equals freedom and liberty. And so to declare independence from God, we think we receive those things. We think we receive freedom. We think we receive liberty. Instead, as Psalm 24 reminds us, if we declare independence from God, we cut ourselves in the very source of life, the very one who gives us purpose, the very one who knows us better than anybody else. Jesus has complete possession over everything. And he has complete power as well. Just look at the power in these verses. The sovereign Lord founded his creation on the seas. He established it on the waters. Throughout the Old Testament, the the seas are a sign of chaos, a sign of uncontrol. They were to be feared. Yet the Lord is completely sovereign and pushes down, controls the waters. He brings order into chaos. He fills where well, there was once void. David is driving home. There really is nothing more powerful than the Lord. Last week, I was down in Wales at a conference called Word Alive. And in the afternoons I took time to, to try and prepare this sermon and to ask some of the students I knew around me, ask them, what is the most powerful thing you can think of? I'm trying to compare what we think is powerful with the Lord in Psalm 24. And I want some comparisons. I don't want to say, we well, think this is powerful, but look how much bigger the Lord is. And they'd reel things off for me. they go, uh, popularity is power. The one who has the most money is power. Approval of others. Sexual satisfaction. Popular culture. The media. Financial stability. Military might. And I'm saying, yeah, the goods, they are powerful, but they just aren't big enough. I want something bigger. Then one person said to me, Greg, just read the psalm again. And then the penny dropped. That is exactly the psalmist's point. There's nothing I can compare the power of the Lord to because he made it all. His power is simply incomparable. See, the king of glory has complete possession of the earth. He has complete power over it. He truly is Lord over all. And so fundamentally, as one preacher says. You do not choose Jesus to be the Lord of your life. He is the Lord of our lives. The question is, will we accept that? We may have accepted Jesus as Lord of our life, and yet in one sense, live with competing lords, with a small l. And we all do that, don't we? We all confess that earlier on. Perhaps one of those other things the student listed is competing lords of your life. But actually, do we see just how foolish that is? Whatever that may be, Jesus is greater the earth is Lord's, and everything in it, and all who live in it. For he founded it on the seas, he established it on the waters. He has complete possession, he's, he has complete uh, complete power. So when was the last time his word challenged you? When was the last time you read his word and you were confronted by it? When was the last time his lordship over all thi- things made a difference in our lives? As I read these verses, my heart is reoriented to remember just how great, how huge he is, and how small I am. I'm reminded that there's no enemy too strong for the Lord, and in that there's great comfort, even in suffering. I read this, and I see how foolish it is that I go after all sorts of trivial things when Jesus is greater. For he has complete possession, he has complete power Behold the possession and power of the king. Have you ever noticed that in our culture, the more powerful someone is, the harder it is to get to them. The more of a celebrity someone is, the more powerful a politician is, the harder it is to get to someone. Actually, isn't it striking? As you read verses 1 and 2, we are blown out of the water. Jesus is far greater. And then verse 3, there's a way to be with this awesome king. Isn't that incredible? Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? There's a way to be with there, to be there with him. David's asking who can come up? Can you stand? Can you come into the presence of this Lord? Look at what is required. Verse four the one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false god. Just think for a moment. Would the person who fulfilled these not be the most wonderful person you've ever met? Would it not be truly beautiful? Think of the person that you love the most, or, or, or perhaps the person that you most want to be like. What makes them so wonderful? There are some people who have skills I would like. I'd love to be as friendly as one of my friends. I'd love to be as good at handling the Bible as another. That's not what I'm getting at here. I mean, who'd like to imitate? I can think of some, some dear senior saints who I'd love to be like. Why is that? What makes them so attractive? Well, it's because at some level, in my experience, they have clean hands. They have a pure heart. They don't trust in idols. They don't swear by a false god. They are so wonderfully beautiful. Because at some level, they're imitators of Christ. But The King of glory, he is beautiful in every way. And to be with him, to be like him, you needs verse 4, clean hands. These are our outward actions. Do we always do good? We need a pure heart. Our inner motives and thoughts, they must be pure. We can't always tell what's going on inside, but the Lord can. Does our, does our private life match up with our public life? Or is there a tension, a disharmony between the two? You can think of these as right living and right thinking. It means we need to be pure like he is. And actually it means to be perfect. Look at verse five. You can't trust in an idol. To meet with God, you need a right relationship with him. And the ESV, to be honest, is much better here than, than the than the NIV. Says who does not lift up his soul to what is false. Then I mean, misses out the soul element. The soul is the entire self. With your entire being, don't go after something else, something that was created. And then, those quiet times, where does our soul go? What do our affections go after? What do we long for for our security, for our comfort, for our happiness? And whatever our answer, it could be something as good as a relationship, as a marriage, as, as children, as a, as, as a ministry, whatever it is, then as Tim Keller says, he turns a good thing into a God thing, and that is idolatry. Think back to the start of the psalm, they all belong to Jesus, so don't go after things he's created, rather go after him. To put our confidence in things created means we're simply living in a fantasy land, we're living in the opposite of verses 1 to 2 here. To be with God, we need right living, right thinking, right relationship with God, and right relationship with others. To send the hill of the Lord, verse 5, we must also not swear by a false God. You must not swear deceitfully. Simply put, what we say, we should mean. If we say we will do something, do we go on and do it? Are our words always what they seem? Or is it too often just politeness, not wanting to risk offending? See, right living... Right thinking, right relationship with God, and right relationship with others. These are the four marks of someone who can come and meet with the Lord. These are the marks of someone who is entirely pure, entirely perfect, pure in their motives and perfect in their conduct. What happens to this person? Well, verse five: they will receive, they will receive blessing, receive vindication, righteousness. Now let's really dig a bit deeper into what's going on in these verses. To ascend the hill of the Lord, you need to be like verse 4. Can this be achieved? Well, no way. I think you should read that and feel the weight of it. That we simply do not match up to what is required. But close up, verse 4, the one who is like, sorry, verse 5, the one who's like verse 4 and so can climb the hill of the Lord has received this. Look at the text, the blessing of being with the Lord, verse 3, and the righteous life required to be with him, verse 4, come from the Lord, verse 5. It is not something achieved, it is something which is received. Do you see that there? And how does that happen in verse 6? Well, by seeking God's face, by a humble going after him. It is by humbly seeking after God for salvation, that one receives it and is transformed evermore into the exact likeness of the king of glory. Isn't that good news for us today? This this declaration of righteousness from God is something we have now as Christians. It's a present reality. But our character change, well, that'll be a lifelong thing, and don't we know it? For it won't be be until Christ appears that we shall be like him. Remember, as we strive to live holy, holy lives, as you strive to live this Christian life, it'll be uncomfortable for us. We'll stick out. As teenagers at school trying to live holy lives, it'll often be painful because you won't want to do what your friends are doing because we follow the king of glory, not the defeated prince of this age. So as we try to live in light of who we are in Christ, Live in light of how we are called to in verse 4. We live at odds with the world. But it will be entirely worth it. For we've been vindicated by God our Saviour. The only Saviour. And we can ascend the hill of the Lord. What a Saviour he is. That That our qualification to climb the hill of the Lord comes entirely from him. Behold the purity and perfection of the King. And So as we climb the hill of the Lord... We see in verses 7 to 10, the proclamation and the procession of the king. Look down at verses 7 to 10. Five times here, the king of glory is mentioned. And notice how he describes himself. He is the Lord. He is strong and mighty. He is mighty in battle. This is his self-declaration. This is his qualification for climbing the hill. And now I think we've got a bit of a tension, don't we? How can Lord just give out righteousness to those who seek him and not judge justly? How can he be all that he says in verse 3? How can he be so perfect and yet be a warrior? On well, verses 1 and 2 of the psalm, we are reminded of Genesis 1 and 2, aren't we? The creation of the world. Verse three highlights for us, sorry, verse two highlights for us as well, the creation of man, where man is the pinnacle of God's creation. But he chose to go against the loving creator who made him. And Genesis three, when man first sinned, God did not sit back uncaring. What wants to do is just quickly pull into a service station and look at what's going on here. How does all this match up together? Well, right from Genesis 3, a man first sinned, the promise from God, the gospel promise, isn't in terms of redemption, it's in terms of Satan's destruction. And we see that in all of historical redemption, there is a war, and Christ is going to win. For God is a man of war. In spite through the back, we've been doing the book of Exodus, and we see that clearly in chapter 15, where the Hebrews sing of their salvation. And the salvation is couched between victory for the Lord. There is no salvation for us without victory for him. And all through the Old Testament we see elements of this great spiritual battle going on. We see echoes of the cross foreshadowing of, of Christ coming in salvation. And where there is to be salvation for the people, there is to be victory for the king. This has always been the case in the Old Testament. And to so what has been promised... Think of that great passage we read at Christmas time in Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, which says this For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there'll be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. And if you open up Isaiah 9, this context here is in the context of war. And in verse 6, we see four titles given to this child to come. And all of them are war related. It's a dear, wonderful counselor. as somebody who who, who strategizes, determines the, the best way to win the battle, the best way to defeat the enemy, a wartime consultant, advisor. The have to mighty God and one Samuel over and over again. We see mighty God is a warrior. So this idea of everlasting father is, is a benevolent protector. Prince of peace, after victory of war, he comes and he offers peace. Take this back into Isaiah, this promised child to come. A strategized warrior king, prince of peace, benevolent protector. The promised king is a warrior king. And then in the start of Luke's gospel, we read of Jesus coming in chapter 1, to come and reign, to reign over his kingdom that will never end. He is this promised warrior king we read of in Isaiah. But who is the enemy? Well, Jews wanted the enemy to the Romans, didn't they? But as you know, Jesus didn't come to defeat the Romans. He said, 1 John 3, 8 says, The one who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. Jesus came to destroy the devil's work. He came to fulfill that great promise back in Genesis 3.15. Satan, sin and death are all the enemies that Christ destroyed. Think of of that well-known passage in Hebrews 2. You might want to turn there, verses 14 to 18. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not the angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason he had to be made fully like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, that he might make atonement for the sins of the people." Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. The context in Hebrews 2 is Jesus bringing many sons and daughters to glory. So Christ came as a human. He came as a human to destroy Satan and defeat death. And in verse 17, Jesus came as a human to propitiate, to make atonement, to turn aside the wrath of God from his people. And the two of them go hand in hand by bearing God's wrath on the cross for our sin, Jesus defeats the devil. Because if Satan can keep us sinning or have our sins forgiven, then he is the victor. But if someone can take care of our sins, then Satan is destroyed. He has nothing. See, Jesus is the king of glory, strong and mighty in battle, because on the cross, he destroys the devil's work. And there, on the cross, Jesus took our shame, our dirty hands, our impure hearts, and he gave us his clean hands, his pure heart. What is ours, we give to him, and what is his, he gave to us, for he is strong and mighty in battle. He has won it for us. As the Scottish minister, Horatius Bonner said, "'Upon a life I have not lived,' Upon a death I have not died, another's life, another's death, I stake my whole eternity. And just picture this scene we read of in these verses in 7 to 10. Picture the Lord Jesus ascending to the heavenly realms, this conqueror, this conqueror of sin, this conqueror of Satan, this conqueror of death. And he comes to the gates and he says, lift up your heads, you ancient gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. And there's murmuring behind the gates. Who is this? What man is this that has ascended? What man is this that stands before these gates? No one has ever stood here before. And the watchman shouts back, who is this king of glory And the conquering, risen Lord Jesus shouts back, It is I, the Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. So lift up your heads, you gates, lift them up, that the King of glory may come in. And as the gates open up, there's murmurings in the back, Who is this King of glory? And the watchman shouts out again, It is the Lord Almighty. He is the King of glory. And as Jesus is received back into heaven, he brings his human glorified body with him and all fall on their faces as Jesus makes his way clothed in righteousness, clothed in majesty towards his father, the ancient of days. And the king of glory, strong and mighty in battle with scars on his hands, sits down on the throne turns to his father and says, it is finished. And all dominion, glory and kingdom is given to his king of glory. All hail the power of Jesus' name. Bring forth the royal diadem and crown him Lord, Lord of all. And in 2 Samuel, as the ark was to ascend the hill of the Lord in Jerusalem, it didn't do so alone. People followed it, not based on them, but rather the entry qualification of the king of glory. And as Jesus ascended to the heavenly Jerusalem, he didn't do so alone. For we too have access to the heavenly realms in Christ. As Ephesians two says, but because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved, and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Or Hebrews twelve, but you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. To the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. Behold the power of the king. Behold his proclamation of who he is. Behold his procession as ransomed sinners follow him into the heavenly realms. Is this really a God we want to live independently from? Look at his power. Look at his beauty. Look at his love for us. Behold the procession and power of the king. Behold the purity and perfection of the king. Behold the proclamation and procession of the king. Is this not a king which we deserve to rejoice around? My friends, behold our king. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we rejoice for you are the king of glory. You are the Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. And we rejoice that you did not leave us in our sin but you came to us as a man. You lived a life we have not lived. You died the death we could not die. You conquered for us sin, Satan, and death. So thank you that we are now alive in you, forgiven, restored. Lord Jesus, may we remember your glory today. May we remember your glory this week, and so have our hearts reorientated towards you. We're sorry for times when when we make small of you, where we forget your glory, try and put you in a box. Lord Jesus, may all honor and praise go to you. May May we behold you in our lives. For you are the king, you are the Lord. We praise you, Lord Jesus. We say all these things in your name, in the heavenly realms before our Father. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.